know? So let me see. I'm going to tell you my humorous story for the week. Half of this, yeah, half of this is true and half of, half of it isn't. So this week I had my, every six months I have to go to my cancer doctor for my checkup. And as far as I know, I'm good for another six months. Yeah. So, yep. So the doctor says to me, do you exercise? And I went, yes. And he goes, really? Do you, are you telling me the truth? Now I got the feeling like, like he does not believe anyone 65 or older really exercises. But you and I both know, we all know here that I know you're supposed to exercise three times a week for a half hour at a time. We all know that I exercise at the 8 a.m. service, the 9.30, and the 11 o'clock service. And I, I just put it all together in one shebang. So, no, I do exercise, but it was so funny. He was like, I, I was going to have him call you, but I wasn't sure if you would back me up or not. <laughs> so, uh, all right, First Samuel like 19, somewhere we're in there. And I'm looking for my Bible. Okay. So let's review. Um, we have King Saul, and his oldest son is named Jonathan. King Saul hires a young boy that we think is about 15 years old. David was his name who eventually will become King David. And he hires David to play some good Christian music for him when he's being worked over by demons. David kills Goliath. And the women who are so taken by David, oh, you know, he's the first teen, I don't know, what are they on Disney when they're that age? What do you call them? teen idol and so the women come up with the song King Saul has killed his thousands but David has killed his tens of thousands now he, at that point he had only killed Goliath but that you know they're always oh, David so wonderful and you know and King Saul gets jealous and envious and he already knows that Samuel said to him God's rejected you as king he's going to replace you and I think Saul already like, whoa, this 15-year-old, the Spirit of God is on him. And I think Saul already kind of knows this, this could be the guy that's going to become the next king. And so Saul is determined to kill David, to eliminate him. So 1 Samuel, let's see. So um, let's come to, forget this, let's come to 1 Samuel 19. Saul told his son, Jonathan, I mean, verse 1, Saul told his son, Jonathan, and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go and stand with my father in the field, blah, blah, blah. Verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine, Goliath. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? 
Saul listened to Jonathan, and he took this oath. And remember last week I talked about oaths and vows, right? And King Saul says, you know what? As surely as the Lord lives, I'm not going to kill David. I promise my son, Jonathan's 45 years old, David's 15. He tells his son, Jonathan, I pledge in the name of God that I will not kill David. By the way, that lasts about two verses. Verse 9. Jonathan's away. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul. He was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the lyre. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And David takes off again. So, so much for that vow. It lasted two verses that he wasn't going to kill David. So now David, chapter 20, meets up with Jonathan, and David goes, I'm telling you, your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan is like, I don't believe it. You know, he gave me his word. So David tells him, your dad's trying to kill me. Verse 2 of chapter 20, never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my dad made a promise to me. Dads, moms, I didn't say this in the other sermons, but when you make a promise to your kid, try to keep it, okay? Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. I don't believe it. And David's like, I'm telling you, he's trying to kill me. So they're going to concoct this whole plan to try to figure out if King Saul is really trying to kill David. But where I want you to jump to is I want you to jump to verse 14. Before Jonathan and David end their conversation, they make a covenant. And here's the covenant, verse 14. But show me, this is Jonathan talking, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a, a what? A covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm that covenant, that oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So I want you to understand something. It's like Jonathan knows that David is going to become king. And when a new family takes over kingship, what do you think happens to all the relatives? Let's say, Ryan, can I pick on you? Yeah. <laughs> Let's say Ryan's king. But he messes up, and the kingship comes to me. What are we going to have to do with all of Ryan's? He's got two sons here. Yeah, don't listen, you guys. <laughs> What do you think has to happen with Ryan's family? We, we have to eliminate them. You know why? Because those two sons, when they get older, they're going to say, we're the king. We're the rightful king. Our dad was king, and you stole it, and, and, and I'm king, and then you're going to try to do me in. So we have to eliminate. And in fact, we'll get into this. You will see that... When David becomes king, they, the people start eliminating every relative, all of Jonathan's brothers, everyone. Because, and David, by the way, is very upset at this. And this is in 2 Samuel. People would come to David and go, hey, David, we did you a favor. We just killed two more, two more sons of Saul. 
uh, is there a reward for us for doing this for you? And David said, oh, yeah, there's a reward. You die because you killed innocent people. You should not have done that. I do not. That's not what I practice. So we'll come back. Now, they come up with this plan to figure out what King Saul really thinks about David. And the plan is that David's going to pretend he's away and see how King Saul reacts when he's not at the dinner. So verse 27 of chapter 20. But the next day, the second day of the month, the next uh, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brother. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of blank, 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 and blank, blank woman, don't you know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom, Jonathan, you're not going to become king. I, I can sense that that kid, that David, is going to become king, and you need to eliminate him because your kingdom, you're, you are going to be the next king. You're your kingship is at risk here. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why, Jonathan, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to what? To kill him. King Saul was like, you know what, Jonathan? You traitor. If you're not going to get rid of David then I'm done with you. You're, the next brother will become the next king. And, and he tries to kill his own son. Now, back up, and I know we have kids here. You see how what mean thing that Saul says to his son? Now, it, it implies, it sounds like it sounds like it's a cut more to the mother. If you have an NIV, doesn't it say, you are the son of blank, blank woman? Do you have that? So it makes it sound like it's a cut to Jonathan's mom, Saul's wife. But we don't believe it actually. So woman in the Hebrew is not there. So some versions... The, the verb is feminine, so it could be there. It may not be there. So depending on what version you have, in the NIV, it looks like, you know, the, the mom is in on this. But, if, but some versions take woman out because that is not there in the Hebrew. And so like the contemporary English version, Saul was furious with Jonathan and yelled, you're no son of mine, you traitor. I know you've chosen to be loyal to that son of Jesse. You should be ashamed of yourself. And your own mother should be ashamed that you were ever born. In the Jewish Bible, the, this is the publication of the Jewish Bible, which would only be the Old Testament. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, Thou son of perverse rebellion, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own shame and unto the shame of thy mother's nakedness. This is like one of the only times in Scripture where I see a father so chew out his son. So that got me thinking about um, things that parents 
can say to kids that are very painful. So this is now open forum. This is a time for you to be a pastor. So what are some hurtful things that parents say to their kids that they don't mean they're upset, they're angry, and they say certain things, but as a parent, you really should never say these things to your kids. You're stupid. You're never going to amount to anything. You're you're fat. You're just like your father. What's wrong with that? What a blessing. You're just like your mother. What's wrong with that? <laughs> so I'm going to give you the 14 things that people have studied. And I was thinking, you know, well, let's not make it more complex. Here's the 14 things, parents, you should never say to your kids. And I'll let you read through them. I know. But you, you get a similar feel when you read through these, right? Has everyone read these seven? Okay. Now, let me tell you what happens, parents. And for us older parents, it's, it's too late. <laughs> no, actually, it's not too late. Because what I was going to tell you is parents can say this stuff to their adult children, too. And, and you should not do it when you get angry at your adult children. Now, the, the problem is when you say this to your kids in your anger, kids believe this is what you actually believe yourself. I know you're going to go, look, I was angry. That's why I said it. But for kids, how they view it is, this is how you really feel about me. And you see, usually you control yourself to not say what you actually believe. But now that you're angry, you let your guard down, and now you're really saying what you believe or think. Does anyone follow that? All right, it is just the opposite, but, but for kids, when they hear this stuff, they take it in your anger they take it as this is truly what you think about them. Now, um, why do parents say these things? I have come to the conclusion that parenting kids is the hardest job in the world. Do you think there's any job harder than that? Raising kids? And I've also come to the conclusion that it's much harder to be parents of, the, of your 18-year-old and older than it is for the first 18 years. <laughs> it's that it doesn't end. I, I thought, oh, once my kids turn 18, I'm, you know, I'm no longer the parent. But that's not true. <laughs> and it can even be tougher as they are going along and making different decisions. And so... You find out you're the parent for your kids for the, your whole life. And it can be tough. They can do, you know, we all have our, you know, uniqueness. So, the, so if you're a parent and you say one of those 14 sayings, my advice to you is that you need to apologize as fast as you can. And you need to correct 
you should assume that they are going to take what you said in your anger as you're revealing your true heart. And so you need to apologize and you need to really show some brokenness and whatever so that your kids know you really didn't mean to say that. And you probably should stop saying that. I tell parents or couples, when they get mad at each other, they will often threaten to each other, I'm going to divorce you. We're going to get a divorce. I tell them, you should eliminate that from your vocabulary. I don't care how mad you get at your spouse, what they've done. I would never pull out that golden bullet and shoot into your spouse. Okay, you with me? But I... You know, the reason I'm bringing this up, by the way, is and why these 14 phrases you should put into your mind, parents, is because I don't know if you're aware, there is a cultural phenomena occurring in the United States with those that are 40 years and younger that are divorcing their parents. They claim this is the first time in the history of the world in that in all of history where those 40 and under are divorcing their parents. It's at roughly 40% of kids when they turn 18, actually some are doing it before 18, but they're stuck at home. You won't know it until they turn 18 and leave. Um, it's at 40% and it is still growing. The reason why it's a cultural phenomenon is because social media, TV shows, movies, um, Facebook, counselors are encouraging the divorcing of parents in the world. And, and those who are already divorced their parents are encouraging their friends to divorce their parents. And so there's this feeling out there that if your parents disagree with you, and, you know, whether it's over politics, over lifestyle, over religion, whatever belief, they call this a, the therapy feel, then people are saying, you need to cut your parent off. They're not helping you to be the full person you can be, to be happy, to be healthy. Your parents are saying things that you don't agree with, you don't like, it's hurting your feelings cut them off. We don't know where this is going to go, but it's already at 40%. So if you have two kids, you have a good chance of one of them doing this. You got grandchildren. Grandchildren are, are doing this as well. And it's growing. It's very interesting to me because it's the last verse in Malachi, in the Old Testament. The very last, well, if you want to look at it, it's, it's just profound. The last verse in Malachi says, verse 5, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So this is a prophecy about the, the day of Jesus coming, the end times. Verse 6, He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents. But when that no longer happens... It says the Lord will come and strike the land with total destruction. 
So it's very fascinating. And by the way, it's not just happening in the United States. It's happening in the world. It's very fascinating that we're watching for the very first time that the kids are totally have ignored the fifth commandment and are divorcing their parents. And God is just sick of that He's, because it ultimately goes against God as a father. And God says, you know, when this happens, I'm going to just... So I, I have... There's a lie that's out there, and it is from Satan. And here's, here's the lie. The kids are growing up in this culture. They're not in church and so they're growing up in the culture and they're hearing, whatever doesn't make you happy, cut off. And, and parents aren't perfect. Any perfect parents here? Okay, so we, we do mess up. By the way, kids that divorce their parents because they say you're not perfect, you weren't a perfect parent, you weren't good, when they have children, guess what happens? They reevaluate. And then they might say, call back to mom and dad, you know what, it may have been a little bit harsh with you now that I have some kids of my own? So there is hope out there. Um, but the world is, is telling the kids, cut off your parents so that you can enjoy true happiness. But God says just the opposite, which most people don't know the fifth command, commandment anymore. If you honor your father and mother, it will go well for you. And you will enjoy long life. So what Satan's lie, so all these kids that are divorcing their parents, it ultimately leads to terrible depression and, and guilt. And, and it's not, it's the kids that honor their parents. It doesn't mean you have to believe everything. My mom and dad, I call them up. They come to the 8 o'clock service online. And I'll talk to them, and they'll give me their advice, which I actually appreciate. 90% of their advice is really good, spot on. 10% of it, I'm like, you know, I'm polite to them. Now, oh, thanks, Dad, for that. But I'm saying to myself, I'm not following that, okay? <laughs> you know? But that's all right. I still honor them. I think they're, we tell our kids, when we talk to our kids, we say, look, here's our advice. But if you leave and do something else, we're Okay. You know, it's just our advice, and so I, I think we keep the bonds with our kids so that our kids know if, if you like it, it fits, fine. If you don't, that's okay. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to work you over. You know, let's keep the relationship. But ultimately, if you honor your parents, that is what's going to lead to enjoyment in life. Now, I want you to come to 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to move on in the story here. 2 Samuel chapter 4. King Saul and Jonathan are killed. They're killed in battle with the Philistines seven years after King Saul chews Jonathan out. And in chapter 4, in the beginning part of 2 Samuel, is now where they're killing all the relatives of Saul. And so, and you can read all of chapter 4, but let's look at verse 4. Of 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, 
he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, I'm probably butchering that. I'm giving you the original Hebrew way of saying it. So, the reason why, you, you have to read the whole chapter, the reason why the news comes out, King Saul and Jonathan are dead. The people are already killing all the relatives of Saul because David's going to become the new king. And that's why when the nurse hears the news, she grabs this baby, the five-year-old, running with him to save his life because his, Jonathan's brothers are going to get killed in this chapter. He runs and, and trips, drops Meshibosheth, and he's laying now in his feet. Okay, and she takes off. Come to chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. Many years go by. Meshibosheth is no longer five years old. He's an adult. I don't know how many years this is, but he's grown now. So David asks, verse 1, David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He remember he made a covenant not to kill Jonathan or any of his relatives. So David's like, is there anyone left? Because everyone's got wiped out. Verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked him, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar is a place, hold on here. Uh, Lodabar, the, the word Lodabar actually means no pasture, no word, no communication. Lodabar was outside of Israel. So the nurse took Meshibosheth outside of Israel because he would be put to death since he belonged to the family of Saul. And Lodabar is like very deserted, barren. There's no, you're cut off. There's no communication. And that's where Meshibosheth is hiding out, outside of Israel. So the king says, verse 5, so King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Amel. Now, I believe that Meshibosheth, as an adult, could have said, there's no way I'm going back to Israel. There's no way I'm going back. But he comes back. So, verse 6, when Meshibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Meshibosheth, at your service, he replied. David says, verse 7, don't be afraid. Why do you think Meshibosheth could have been afraid? This is the last one that could say, I am the king, right? He could say, I'm, you know, in the, the original lineage. So he's, he's, don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Because he made that covenant. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. Meshibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? takes a very humble posture. Then the king summoned Ziba, 
Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Meshibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So that's 35 people that are now going to serve Meshibosheth. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Meshibosheth ate at David's table like one of the, what? King's sons. Meshibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Meshibosheth, of Ziba's household, were servants of Meshibosheth. And Meshibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Wow! <laughs> that story is the gospel story. It is the most amazing gospel story in, in the Old Testament. I'm like, wow! If you're Jewish, you can't, can't you see the whole message of the gospel there? So let's, uh, let me, let's go over this story. We know that Meshibosheth is a cripple. He is lame. And how did he become crippled? He fell. Yeah, he fell by his nurse. So all of us are spiritual cripples. Our walk with God has been crippled. And some say the nurse is like Satan in a sense, or maybe the nurse is Adam and Eve. But because of sin, there was the fall. We all have a fallen nature. All of us have fallen. For in Romans, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of us are spiritual cripples, and we all live in Lodabar. Lodabar is outside the promised land. It's outside of heaven. We have no communication. We have no connection with God. It's barren. It's desolate to live outside of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. But David, out of his kindness, out of grace, out of the covenant he made, says, hey, where, where is he? I, I want to find him. I want to invite him to come to Jerusalem. Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I believe Meshivashevh could have said, there is no way I am going back to Israel. But he goes. Even though he's scared, he goes. I think Jesus seeks out every person he is seeking. People are hiding. People are in the low debars out there in life, hiding from God, perhaps scared of God and his judgment and the hell that we deserve. Even, even Meshibosheth says, I'm a dead dog. I'm a dead. Why are, you, why, are you, why are you reaching out to me? I'm a dead dog. I'm a sinner. I'm a, I, I, I don't deserve any of this. And he doesn't. It's, it's God's grace. It's the kindness that David is showing. So, Jesus is searching and inviting us to come to him. 
And when Mephibosheth responds and comes, you notice he bows down. In fact, twice we're told he bows down before David. That's bowing the knee to our Savior, Jesus Christ. David is a type of the Messiah, by the way. You know Jesus comes from the lineage of David. He sits on David's throne. So he bows before David, and then he says, I'm your servant. When you bow the knee to the Lord, there's something that comes upon you. God, I'm your servant. I want to serve you from this day forward. King David invites him to eat with him. You're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life, Meshibosheth, at the king's table. You know, I think about eating at the table, and I think about in Revelation, so the church goes up to heaven, and then there's the wedding, the wedding banquet when the church marries Christ right before we return on our white horses to the earth. And there's a wedding banquet that is served in heaven. And I think to myself, I bet you that's not the only time we eat in heaven with Jesus. I want to claim to you that I know this for a fact that the Bible says that every Sabbath, so I think there will be seven days in heaven, just like God created the original earth. There'll be seven days in heaven, and for six days we're going to work and serve and love and travel and, and go wherever, but every Sabbath we all come back home. We all come to the Father's house, and we have an amazing worship service. And I picture Jesus leading you know, the singing and, and, and we got this worship. Some of you will, if you're, you'll have harps. Some of us have harps. There'll be some drummers caged up in heaven somewhere. <laughs> so there'll be, you know, I can't, big pipe organ up in heaven. So great worship service. At the end, I don't think we're going to just take off. Do you know that for all time in almost every culture, what do you think people do on We'll call it the Lord's Day or that special day of the week. What do you think most people do? They get together with family to eat. They go to dad's house, mom's, and they get together. And it's almost universal in every culture that one day a week you go get with your parents or you get with, you know, and, and you have a dinner together and you fellowship. And I think that is built into all of us because we're created in the image of God. And I think that it's not just something we came up with, I think it's God's like, well, that's what we're going to do. You're going to eat at the king's table every Sabbath. We're going to get together, and the angels are going to serve us, and they love serving, and, and you should see the food of heaven and, and the great fellowship we're going to have, and then we head back out till next week. King David says, I got blessings for you, Meshavashef. You, you inherit King Saul's mansion and the land. Jesus says, hey, Joe, I have a mansion for you. And by the way, that planet's yours too. Now, King David owned it all, but he gave it to Mephibosheth. I realize Jesus owns everything, but do you understand that Jesus says, I am sharing my inheritance with believers, that we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ, that he is like... God, the universe is so big, Let's, I'm, I'm sharing it. I'm, I'm sharing the estate with my brothers and sisters. 
the king employs many servants. So the King David says to Ziba, hey, you and your sons and all the servants, I want you to serve Meshibosheth. And, and Ziba's like, absolutely. Your word is our command. I see that Ziba is a type, and you, Ziba comes up later on. He's an amazing guy. You know, when King David runs for his life from Absalom, King Ziba has all these donkeys stocked with all kinds of food for King David. He's running for his life. King David's like, what's going on, Ziba? What, what did you do? And Ziba says, I have all these animals ready to ride you and, and your whole family with food and supplies to run. It's like, you should see the reward Ziba gets. But Ziba reminds me of the angels of God. They love serving. And in Hebrews 1.14, are not God's ministering spirits, the angels, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So we always talk about we have one guardian angel. Maybe we don't. Maybe some, some of you need 10 guardian angels. But the angels are up there in heaven. They're like, we love to serve. We love to help out. He was like one of the, we're told that Meshibosheth is at the table and he is like one of the king's sons. Oh, yes. When you come and accept the invitation to Jesus, you become a son and daughter of the king. You're adopted into the family. He lived in Jerusalem. We live in the new Jerusalem. And it was all in fulfillment of the covenant David made with Jonathan, which is a very interesting word, covenant. I know we got the old covenant, and we have the new covenant. And the new covenant, Jesus went to the cross, paid for our sins that we deserve to suffer for, buried, rose again on the third day, and because of the covenant, Jesus, by his kindness, his love, is offering to have this relationship. He's, he's calling all of us to come into fellowship with him. Do we deserve it? No. Can we earn it? No. It's out of Jesus' kindness. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We're dead dogs. We're sinners. The last line reminds us, it says, the last line is that Meshibosheth is still lame. That's because on this earth, we're still sinners. We're saved, we're adopted into God's family, but don't forget, we're still sinners, saved by grace. Now, praise God, when we get to heaven, sinful nature, gone. It's the new covenant. Jesus, the reason you're here this morning, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, is Jesus has been seeking you. You've been living in low debar. You've been living separated from God. No communication with God. You maybe have been living in fear. What's going to happen when you stand before God someday? But I want to tell you, come bow your knee, bow your spirit before Jesus. And he wants you to eat at his table. He wants you to live with him in all glory. He wants to adopt you as his family. Just bow our heads. And close our eyes. And Christians praying. If you're here this morning, the Bible says that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. He's, he knows where you're at. He's found you. But he's knocking. He's not going to force himself. He's knocking and saying, hey, open the door for me. 
If you open the door for me, I'm going to come in and eat fellowship with you. And then someday you will eat and fellowship with me in glory. The Bible says, yet to all who receive Jesus, he gives you the right to become children of God. Jesus gives by his grace, you can have the right to go to heaven and, and experience all the amazing blessings God has for you for all eternity. If you're here this morning, you've never given your heart to Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud, and I invite you to pray along with me silently to give your heart in repentance to Jesus Christ. So I'll pray out loud. You pray silently in your spirit to mean business with the Lord. Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm like a dead dog. I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I have done things that are, I'm guilty I don't deserve. Your servant doesn't deserve to go to heaven. But I'm broken in repentance. And Jesus, I ask you to be my savior. Come into my life, into my heart. I want to eat at the king's table forever. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins and giving me eternal life. Thank you that I can now cry out, Abba, Father, that God has become my father because I've been adopted into his family. Thank you for saving my soul. With heads bowed, eyes closed, those of you that prayed that prayer with me, I would like to pray a prayer of blessing upon you. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. If you pray that prayer with me, I'd like you to slip your hand up and then after I see you, put it down and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer to give my heart to the Lord. God bless you. Anyone else? I don't want to miss anyone. Anyone else that you prayed to give you? I'm not going to call you out or anything, so don't worry about that. Anyone else? Just slip your hand up. When I see you, you can put it down. All right, Father, I join together with this congregation that's here this morning. In the first service, there was one. Someone new, a, a, a younger woman. In the second service, there were six. And in this service, there was one that has cried out to you. And we pray for that one in this service right here, that your spirit would come upon come upon them in your power, that they would leave knowing that they, their soul is saved, they belong to you. May you give them the assurance by your spirit of their salvation, that they've been adopted into your family, Lord. And may you bless their life. May they sense you are with them from this day forward, that you'll never leave them nor forsake them. May they be powerful in the Lord. May they be a servant Lord, may you use them to serve others and to serve you especially, Lord. And Father, bless us as we close out in, in this powerful hymn. In your name we pray. Amen.